はい And so far, we've talked night one about、uh, what does it mean to love God completely. And we asked a more basic question, which instead of trying to set up all the things that we've done, the mission trips we've been on, our church attendance, our、uh, school doctrine grades, our theology class grades, about trying to prove how much you love God, go back to the scriptures. When Jesus allows for himself to define what it means to love the Trinity, to love Father, Son, and Spirit, what does he say? He doesn't have a list of things that you do or don't do in terms of your moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's a big word, meaning sometimes we follow God because we think it's just what good people do. Jesus calls us to follow him for something differently, something deeper, something, something more real, something more valuable. And so when Jesus says, If you love me, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll feed my sheep. If you love me, you'll do what I do. If you love me, you will turn from your life of sin. And so instead of labeling ourselves as Christian, we dug into the idea of without a label, would anyone know? Would you know? And is the answer to that question in your life actually able to save you? Or has it just been surface level? Like labeling an orange tree a lemon tree doesn't make any difference to the fruit that it's bearing. On this morning, we had a conversation about what does it mean to love yourself correctly? And as the great theologian Bieber once said, if you like the way you look that much, you should go and love yourself. And our whole culture has perpetuated the idea that if you want to love yourself, you focus on yourself, you treat yourself, you become in all cases egocentric. Ego is from the Greek letter I. Centric means in the solar system of the economy of your heart, you are the center, and the world revolves around you. It's like the Truman Show. People might be confused, but at the end of the day, you are the star of this whole grand theater called life. And the more that you do that, the more that you sit in a position that only God was meant to sit in. See, God is the center of all things, He is the creator, He is the sustainer, and He alone is worthy of worship. And many of us in our hearts and in our lives, we've placed ourselves as the object of our own worship or the worship of those around us, and it has absolutely leveled us. We found ourselves wanting and lacking and painfully seeking value and meaning and worth in a worthless, valueless, meaningless world around us. And the more that we've sought to fulfill a God shaped hall with world shaped things, the more that we've become further and further away from what we were made to be. And everything is judged on its ability to carry out the purpose that it was created for. That's what an iPhone is. That's what a car is. That's what a broom is. It all exists to fulfill the desires of the one who created it. And in the same way, we need to ask the question then, what was I created for? And am I doing a good job? But we almost never slow down long enough to answer two basic questions What in the world is my reason for breathing? And am I living out that reason well? Am I living into the reason that I was actually made for? And tonight, I, I, the, the theme is going to kind of be this idea of respond authentically, okay? So love God completely, love yourself correctly. And tonight, I'm going to give you a challenge just to, to respond authentically. 
I told you at the beginning of the week, I'm not gonna sugarcoat things for you. I'm gonna tell you it like it is. And I think the best thing you can do in the way that the, the gospel and the Bible was supposed to be taught is to give you all the information. All the information about a very real God. A God that puts planets and solar systems in place. That has the world so perfectly lined up that the probability of there being any life anywhere in our universe is beyond mathematically impossible. It's astronomical, it's infinitesimal that there should be life anywhere. Even the way that you were designed and intricacies with, with what you were designed in are so unfathomably incapable of being replicated, duplicated, even with the most profound of science of this day. And it's not because you're some kind of grown up cosmic accident, it's because there is a God. Romans 1, 19 to 20, this is what Paul says. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's indivisible qualities, namely his divine nature, have been clearly seen from what has been made so that man is without excuse. In Pauline language, all he's saying is, it is obvious God's fingerprints are on the universe, including you. We're walking out, my son Peyton, he's seven years old. Uh, I'm a football fan and so I named my, I have two sons named Peyton and Brady and uh, they're just, they're, they're great football players, okay? I know they probably wouldn't get along in real life and they don't, so it makes sense. Um, and then my other son's name is Leo and then I've got two daughters, Harper and Finley and um, we're walking out in the woods and it was this summer, we decided to kind of trudge through, there's a lake, you know Jeb, the guy with the uh, mustache, uh, he just makes me weak in the knees when I watch him just shake out his little red mullet. Um, we walked in the stream behind his house and someone had carved the initials in the tree uh, that we were walking next and it just said C plus R with a heart around it. And my son in his seven year old mind looked at that and he said, Daddy, who wrote that? And clearly I don't know, right? And neither does he, and I could guess. And I don't know if that person was tall or short or skinny or fat or uh, intelligent or dumb or a man or a woman or, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know any of that stuff, but I do know one thing. That was the result of a personal mind that wrote that. And that's how simple it was. It was just a C plus R with a heart around it. And my son went, who did that? You see, complexity screams out for intelligence. It screams out for a creator. And if a seven-year-old looks at two letters and goes, someone must be here, how much more complex were you made? With the A's, the T's, the G's, and the C's of your very genetic code that, that, you were, that, that you were, every cell in your body is meant to make more cells of you. And every 13 years or so, every cell in your body dies and a new one is born. So you could pretty much say that you're a brand new person every 13 years, not a single cell is the way that it used to be. And God structured you with all of your microorganisms that work so that you can perceive me right now. And the language that I'm speaking is such that your calculations in your brain are able to take words and give them meaning and power so that you can interpret the words that I'm saying. You see, if that, if you can see a C plus R with a heart and you think someone did that, how could you look at your own life and think you were an accident? It's a fallacy in logical reasoning called the taxicab fallacy. If that requires intelligence and you don't, you've made a fatal error of judgment. So we know that there's a God and we must love him completely. That's what the scripture tells us to do. This is the truth of it. Then we talked about what does it mean to love yourself correctly. It is not to indulge yourself, it is to deny yourself. It is not to listen to the cultural norms about how great you are, it's to listen to scripture about how without God, how depraved we are. Not that we would sit and sulk 
and exist in a state of absolute sorrow, but so we would call out for help and salvation. Maybe you've noticed that from the first two conversations. The first one, you might go, well, how could I ever love God completely? Well, with all of the broken sin and darkness in my heart, how could I ever, without a ton of pride and hubris and, and, and self-indulgence, how could I ever love myself correctly? Do you know the answer to both of those questions? You can't. You can't love God completely. You know, silly Deuteronomy 6, verse four through six is the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's all you have to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That wasn't really meant for us to go, I'm doing a great job. That's every fiber of your being. Your heart, the seat of your will, volition, and emotion. Your mind, your mental capacities, the way that you live your life, the properties that God has given you, even in your physical body. He says, love me with every bit of it. Not a one of us in here should go, I'm getting about an A plus in that category. No, the whole Old Testament is meant for us to look at the law and look at the 613 ways in which God tells us this is what perfection means. And when God in the New Testament meets the rich young ruler and says, what are the commandments? He says, do all these things and you inherit eternal life. What is the proper response? I can't. It isn't to start on your journey of perfectly upholding law, it's to surrender your life and go, no, 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 there's no way. This is the problem Jesus had with the Pharisees. They were attempting to do it. And that nullifies the power of Christ on the cross. And it, it, and it naturally then lies about your own state of darkness in your heart. The Bible says, if you've stumbled in one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. It could then be stated categorically that even though you are guilty of far less crimes here on planet Earth, there's not a one of us who hasn't broken the entire law of God. That means if you've ever lusted after a woman of your heart, in your heart, Jesus says you've already committed adultery, and James says you're guilty of stumbling in the whole law. Murder. Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery. You're guilty of breaking the whole thing, so how could you ever stand in front of God and go, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. The first two conversations are for all of us to kneel down and go, wait, what? And to those who are willing to lean in to the power of the love of the God to surrender and simply say, I can't, but I'm pretty sure you can. And so I'm calling you tonight to respond authentically. When I say authentically, I mean, I don't want some BS about you coming here and getting caught up in some emotional moment or every year you re-give your life to Jesus like it's some sort of like magazine subscription. What I want is for you to intake the information about who God is and who you are and what he's done and I want you to respond as adults. When you get to heaven and meet God face to face, your mom won't be there. Well, she might be in heaven, but I don't mean that. But she's not gonna advocate for you, right? You can't go, well, as a family, our faith, no there's, no, there's no corporate faith. That's not a thing. If I could corporately baptize all of you right now and know that you were gonna be saved, I would do it, even against your will. I'd come out here with a big old like fire hose and go, I baptize y'all, you know? Because that's how much I want you to be there. That's how much I want you to be saved, but I can't. If I could implicate my belief on you, man, if I could even put you through part of the suffering that I've been through, if it drew you nearer to him, you better believe I wouldn't, withhold any of it, why? Because when I compare the present sufferings with the glory to be found in Christ, I have found the things of this world to be rubbish, scubalon, trash. 
compared to the surpassing worth that's found in Christ Jesus. And I want you to know that truth too. But I don't want you to, I don't want you to walk around and not come to a cross section at some point in your life and go, do I just do the whole BCHS thing? Do I just do the whole Christianity thing? Do I just do the I'm in a Christian home thing or I'm from a Catholic upbringing or I'm in, do I just, am I just around it? Because when you get to heaven, God's not gonna go, so who were your friends? What school did you go to? He's gonna go, who are you? And then he will judge you either based on your sin or on the sins of Jesus. And the guest list to heaven is only one name long, and it's not your name. There's only one name on it. You might think like, look at it, it's just one name. It says Jesus Christ, which means when you meet God face to face, he will either look at you and judge you for your sins, or he will look at Jesus and judge you for his sins. That's penal substitution. Jesus took the penalty for my sin so that I could be found in his righteousness. Jesus paid it all. So I want to lean into this story and I want to make one point and then I'm going to ask you just to think through and take an inventory of your heart based on the big conversation, the big question that we're going to have here tonight. So Mark chapter five, Malachi, do you have Malachi already? My man, front row, love and life. All right, Mark chapter five, beginning of verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Okay, we saw this pattern already, right? Who else did this in the story yesterday? The rich young ruler. My man, 10 points for Gryffindor. The rich young ruler falls at Jesus' feet, and this is a, this is a posture of what? Submission, right? At least insofar as this is what it's supposed to look like. He pleaded earnestly with him. Okay, I love that word earnestly. I think as a dad that if I had, if Harper, my baby girl, not the youngest one, Finley's my babyest girl, but Harper, my daughter, somehow fell ill, it didn't matter who I was, this is a synagogue leader. This synagogue leader is probably a kind of against Jesus, right? Because Jesus came to undo their whole religious system. In fulfilling the law, he then made the law not obsolete. He didn't, he didn't come to say that law isn't important anymore, but he came to fulfill it. So the ceremonial law of the Old Testament could be done away with because Jesus was the Paschal Lamb. He was the sacrificial lamb. He was Genesis 22, the propitiation. He was the lamb caught in the thickets. He, he paid the price for our sins. So the Old Testament law did not have to be uh, honest anymore as far as ceremony goes. We still obey the Ten Commandments. We still obey the, the tenets of the Old Testament for sure. But Jesus fulfilled them all so that faith in him now saved us, not adherence to all those things. So, uh, he pleads earnestly with him. As a synagogue leader, even though he's opposed to Jesus, you, you tell this is a father on his last leg. And if you have, a, I know maybe you don't have a dad that's present in your life, or you have a dad that um, it's been difficult for you with him, or uh, and, and again, in our world, it could be abusive, it could be neglectful, I know. I know that the world father has a lot of weight for a lot of you. But a good father, when their kid is sick and dying, you'll do whatever you can for them. And so we find, we find this man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, crossing party lines to come and meet Jesus. I, I know I shouldn't be here, but my baby girl's sick. Will you help me? And I love the response here. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed. So Jesus went with him. 
Here's the story I want to focus on. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, right? They're into this Jesus thing. They want to know what's going on, right? This guy said, my daughter's dying. Jesus said, show me, right? Just the popcorn that's popping in the houses of Jerusalem at this moment that are going, oh man, this guy's done a lot of crazy junk. And this guy's daughter's dead. And then when he heard this, Jesus said, show me. This is going to be great. Because no matter what, it's a show. If Jesus shows up to a dead girl and tries to bring her back to life and nothing happens, that's pretty amusing, right? And we're going to expose him for the fraud that he is. But if he's right, and this Jesus has the power to make dead things live, then maybe everything we thought about him is wrong. Here's what it says. They pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So this is a, a condition that happened, especially back then, that was much more prominent because we have ways of healing it today. But this is a woman who had a, who's had a 12-year-long menstrual cycle. 12 years she's been bleeding. Now, obviously, in modern, in modern day and age, we've got a lot of ways that this can be done much more, in a way it's much more sanitary, in a way that, but back then you need to understand two things. Number one, there was not really a sanitary way of doing this. And number two, the ceremony of touching blood and being ceremonially unclean was placed on anyone who had ever touched blood, including if you touch a dead body or even a woman during a menstrual cycle. Here's what ceremonially unclean meant. That means that they were ostracized and they were separated from society. You were not allowed to touch anyone. You had to go and you had to make penance in front of the, in front of the priest. You had to bathe in a mikvah and you had to be ceremonially cleansed. And then you had to be declared by a rabbi to be clean before you could enter back into the assembly of people. Now I know it's, it's, it's on the surface, it's kind of like, oh man, that's kind of a, it's a strange thing to happen, but you, you can't, right now you can't be a 21st century American. You have to try to jump back into their world. And you have to be a 28-year-old woman who's had a menstrual cycle for 12 years. That means you've watched your family, family and friends have kids that you've never held. You are the aunt that's never been present. You are, you, that means you've had no affection as far as romance goes. And in a society where you are sealed by your husband and that was what gave you worth in their day and age, you haven't experienced any of that. You haven't shaken hands with anyone. You haven't experienced physical touch. You haven't been in a room of crowded people to have dinner. You haven't experienced the Passover with your friends. Every religious festival that has come and gone, you have had to be outside of. You are a leper. You're out. You've been separated from the rest of them. So this 12-year-long menstrual cycle isn't just, it's not just an inconvenience or something that we could think is, man, that, that, that would be really rough. That'd be really gross. It's something so much deeper than that. It represents separation from everyone that she loves. For 12 years. And we see this woman in the middle of a crowd. The book of Leviticus makes it very clear. If you are bleeding, or you make someone come into contact with you when you're bleeding, if I have a cut on my leg, and I walk up to you and I touch you with my hand, because I have an active bleeding wound, I've made you ceremonial and clean, which means now you have to do what I had to do. I have to go in front, now you have to go in front of me with the priest and go, hey, we touched blood, bathe in the mikvah, ceremonial and clean, and have a rabbi announce us as being pure again. And so when you did that, you, you inconvenienced people and they hated it because people didn't want to be unclean. They hated that. 
And now you get a crowded group that's following Jesus around and you get a woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years in the middle of all of it. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. When you read back in the old texts that say how they tried to deal with this, the, the prescriptions for this were just awful. It's terrible. Getting kicked by certain animals was supposed to help it. Getting, standing upside down and observing traffic on a street corner, uh, stripping naked, and it, it, was, it was humiliating. It was unhelpful. And oftentimes, like it says here, after spending all that she had, verse 26, Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Oh, I love this next line. When she heard about Jesus, when she heard about Jesus, where's Malachi? Malachi, help me out. What's Malachi 4 verse 2 say? Loud and proud, my man. But to you fear my name, the son of righteousness, righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Okay, hand me the, hand me I'm gonna read it. Perfect, that's great. Sorry. For behold, the day is coming, and all the proud, yes, all who wickedly will be, all who, who do wickedly will be like stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, said the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Okay? That word there for wings is the same word for talit, or we would use it, it's a, it was a Jewish garb. It was a prayer shawl that would be worn by a rabbi, and it was basically uh, a way of showing that you were part of the, of the religious elite. You would wear that around you, and it had four corners, and had these little tassels on the end, and they were called your talits, or your, your the zitzit, okay? That's a direct translation of the same word found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which is translated as wings. So, when you put it on, you, people would say, this is the wing of my garment, or this is the zizi, this is the talent of my garment. So here's what we find. We find that in the book of Malachi, okay, how many books after Malachi are in the Old Testament? None, it's the last one in the Old Testament. What happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Whoa, yes! <laughs> I'm not used to having people know the answer to that. They're always like, I don't know. Uh, 400 years of silence. So you better believe that they held tightly to the last words of, of God's prophecies before the silence. They haven't heard from God in 400 years. And you, your last chapters of the Old Testament are Malachi where it says, when the Messiah comes, there will be healing in his wings. And so this woman has started to hear the story, the rumblings about this man named Jesus, who some say is the Messiah. And what does she know about Messiah from Malachi chapter four, verse two? He will have healing in his wings. And the very corner of the tassel that he's wearing is called his talit, or translated, it is his wings. So we find a woman of religious acumen who understands the Old Testament prophecy, who leans in and, and pitches the idea, I think this is the one. She puts all of her chips in, she pushes her cards in the middle of the table, and she says, I'm going in on this guy. She has to walk through the middle of a crowded group of people, so she's about to suffer great shame and great humiliation but she sees him and she remembers hearing as a little girl the stories about what would happen when Messiah came and she remembered there will be healing in his wings. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his talit, his cloak, that's his wings, because she thought, if I just touch him, I will be healed. Immediately, her blood stopped 
and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around and asked the crowd, who touched my clothes? Again, don't be an American. Don't, you gotta go back. You gotta be one of the crowd who's just found this woman. You're following Jesus. You're like, hey, I was first in line. And you gotta get this woman who comes up and bumps into you and grabs the corner of his cloak and then just stops and goes. And she like looks down at her hands and exam and feels and she just goes. And then you watch the Messiah stop. And you're like, why'd we stop? And Jesus stops and he turns and he just says, who touched me? The, the theatricality of it all is phenomenal. Because what's the answer? Who touched him? Yeah, who said it over here? Who touched him? Everyone did. You're in a crowd of people, Jesus. This is their response. This is what it says. Who touched me? Uh, this is just like, <laughs> so we want to like, punch someone because they're being sarcastic. Uh, the disciples responded, uh, we're in a crowd. How, why would you ever ask who touched me? What are they saying? They're saying, bro, everyone touched you. But see, Jesus, Jesus makes a, distingu a distinguishment here. He, he delineates between two things. He's unconcerned with the crowd who's bumping into him. He wants to know who reached for me. See the difference he just makes there? He goes, I don't, no, 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 I'm not, no, I didn't ask who's been rubbing shoulders with me, who bumps into me, who's in the immediate audience of what I'm saying, who's close because they want to see something neat happen. I didn't ask that question. I said, who just reached out for me and touched me? Who's bumping into me was not out of necessity or out of osmosis or out of a label. Who did it because they needed healing? They were aware of their pain. They were aware of their separation. They were aware of their separateness and they wanted change and they knew me and they trusted me to be their salvation. Who, I will ask you one more time, touched me. And he turns to find a woman staring at her hands and feet who just realized if this guy with a grabbing of his wings can take away 12 years of blood from me, I'm pretty sure he knows who touched him. And so in a conundrum, she finds herself. And I'm picturing Jesus at this moment, right? If the woman's standing right there, he's probably like, who touched me? <laughs> I'll say one more. Who touched me? What's the problem? If she says yes, what happens? Do you think people in this town know who this woman is? Yeah. yeah. She's the 12 year long menstrual cycle lady. Everyone's been talking about her. She's been ostracized. And one thing that no one has done in 12 years, no one has touched her. And so as the people are crowding around and looking and they turn, who touched me? And they look and they see her, they go, hey, oh man, you touched me too. And everyone in the crowd is starting to line up their calendars. Okay, so that means I gotta be ceremonial clean. I got seven days, I gotta go to the rabbi, I gotta humiliate myself. And I touched her. And she can't touch her. You are the leper, you are the outcast of society. But who did she touch intentionally? 
Jesus. And in a religious society, the rabbi, the good teacher, Rabboni, is the top of the top of the religious food chain. And so the people crowding around who are fishermen and the unintelligible and the people who can't read or write or anything, and they've just picked up jobs around the farm, whatever, they're just like, hey, this is neat, this is neat. And they go, like, oh, bummer, we're gonna have to do, but you touched a rabbi who prides themselves on ceremonial cleanliness, who watches how many steps they take on the Sabbath so they would never be confounded to break the law, has been touched by a bleeding woman. You've got to imagine the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are in the, who are in the theater of what's going on, who are watching, are just going, this is it. This guy is gonna murder this woman. That would have been a very appropriate response with how low women were viewed, with how uh, ostracized they would be, and to be a bleeding woman in that day and age in a religious society, you couldn't get any lower. And you touched the king. And he turns, and he looks at her, and he says, who touched me? Does she tell the truth? Does she lie? Does she go, I don't know. I don't know who touched you. Does she cover her face so that those around her wouldn't blame her for their ceremonial uncleanliness? Would that be irresponsible because then they <laughs> themselves are ceremonial unclean without even knowing it? All these thoughts are running through her mind. I would presume. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Don't you love it? it says that he felt his power leave him. It's not, he, he didn't have like a battery supply of power, right? He wasn't like, no, 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 wait a minute. He's not like, wait a minute, my power's gone. No, he just, he sensed there was, a dis, there was a distinction between what was happening and what just occurred. Then the woman, oh, this is so good. Then the woman, woman knowing what had happened to her, came and, help me out, what does it say? Fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the truth. That word in the original language is, is, is truth intensified, the whole truth, the complete truth. We would, if you were a drama kid, you would say, told him the truth, everything. And what? Her loneliness? Her suffering, the humiliation of doctors, the way she got ripped off by people who would come in, the local shaman who would say, I promise I'll get you better if you'll pay. And she was bankrupt, a bankrupt, bleeding, destitute, ostracized, unmarried woman in a religious society falls before him on her knees, mercy of the court, and says, let me tell you everything that's happened to me. She confesses, she tells him what's going on. She's honest, she's real, she's vulnerable. She responds authentically. And so she just told the whole crowd that she has touched the rabbi with her uncleanliness. And now we await the rabbi's response. Is it punishment? Is it further ostracization? Is it to remove the healing that she just experienced? Is it to ridicule her? 
Can you imagine the names that the majority of all rabbis throughout the whole universe who have ever lived, could you imagine the names they were conjuring up? You betrayer, you loathsome woman, you, you, how dare you? You don't touch me, you destitute, poor, broken, miserable, ostracized, lonely woman. How dare you touch me, the religious elite? And let's see what Jesus says. He says, daughter. Wait, what? <laughs> you just called her daughter? In one word, Jesus says two things. Number one, your truth, your vulnerability, your honesty, your repentance, and your confession of what happened has earned you, through my future sacrifice, the ability to be called my daughter. And secondly, for everyone in the audience of what's going on, if you feel like messing with this woman, let me tell you one thing. I just made her bleeding stop. I'm about to heal a dead woman. I put the stars in place and I thought up dinosaurs. And that is my daughter. And if you mess with her, you mess with me. And people are kind of like, oh yeah, cool, yeah, for sure. Okay, cool, yeah. Daughter, yeah, for sure, I liked her anyway. She was great. What's your name, Sam? Samantha? Okay, cool, yeah, I always liked Samantha. She was neat, yeah. Can I like high five her? Or we're like, what, how does it work? <laughs> Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The next verse. Jesus then went to the temple because he himself must go through ritualistic cleansing. Wait, did your Bible say that? No, he's bringing a new thing. He's bringing a new covenant. He says, no, no, you don't understand. When sin touches me, it doesn't make me sinful. When I touch sin, I make it pure. In a backwards way that they never would have understood, in the only way we'd ever experience it, when the beautiful, precious, bright white, blazing white robes of Jesus touches any kind of uncleanliness, dirt, mud, blood, whatever it is, for whatever, in some cosmic backwardness, the blood goes away. The stain goes away. The mud has become clean and his, his righteous robes don't get dirty. Why? Because he's already paid the price for the sin. He's already paid the price of the blood. He's already paid the debt that the debtor owes, and that is you and me. And as you sit here, and as you digest these things, and as you intake this, I'm going to guess that for a lot of us, because I was you, we had a measure of truth that we were willing to give to the people around us in Christian schools. Because moralistic therapeutic deism runs through a lot of our hearts. I've gotta be a good person. I've gotta put up the front. I've gotta make people think a certain way about me. I've gotta avoid certain things. I've gotta participate in certain things. My mom's always on me about the new mission trip I gotta go on, or the new thing I gotta do, or the new honors roll, like, honor roll I gotta do. And I gotta make sure I keep up the appearance, but it's killing you inside. Because you have a truth under the surface, a truth, a business you need to do with God, a doubt that you struggle with. You don't even know if God's real, or you might think he's real, but you can't stand him. You might be so frustrated with, with the way that your life has gone, you can't see how could there, there could possibly be a loving God with the way that your life has played itself out. And the bullying that you undergo, or the bully that you are, because you're cowardly deep inside something so much smaller than you present yourself as, you can't stand the fact that there's possibly a God that loves you. 
But when you pray, your prayer sounds like this. God, I've got a math test, help me with it. God, my dog's sick, make him better. God, I really don't wanna go to this thing, so please let there be a fog delay. God, would you please, and, and God, you, you, you're as sick of it as God is. That's not your truth. God can handle your doubts. Have you read Psalms? <laughs> Have you read Lamentations? When my wife killed herself, I was so mad at, I'm, I'm still, I still sit there in confusion, like, what are you doing? How, like, what, what is this, you're, is this like some big, is this some big way you want to show everyone? Like, look, here's the pastor, let's give him a better testimony by having his wife kill himself and raise five kids by himself. Is this your big idea? All good things work for the good of those who love them are called to your purpose. I'm called according to your purpose. Work this for good, why don't you? I can't even work a normal job. I had to resign from my church two weeks ago. You want to know why? Because I've got five kids at home and no mom. What are you doing? In the midst of that truth, I've understood a God of love far beyond what I ever would have understood before. And so I challenge you. What does it look like to get rid of the fake version of yourself that you keep pitching before friends, family, and God himself as if he can't see the brokenness and the truth of your heart? Like if you could, if, if, you could, if all pretense were dropped, and someone could read the tablet of the deepest confines of your heart and recite it to Jesus, what would it say? And until you're willing to give God that part of you too, you will grow up in a version of Christianity that you always feel like is fake, but it's not because Christianity is fake, it's not because Jesus is fake, it's because you're fake because you would never dare be real, because you're afraid of what you would say. You're afraid of how you'd be perceived. But that's why, that's why Christianity has become disinteresting to you. It's a, a whole bunch of cardboard cutouts of people's hearts that aren't really them, that they give to one another and that they raise their hands, but they know that, they're, that they've got questions and they've got hurts and they've got pain and they've got sickness in their families and their parents are going through divorce and you've got to go to school every day and keep up your appearances. And so you have altogether found God disinteresting because he doesn't deal with who you are. He's, he deals with who you want him to think you are. And so I challenge you with this. What does the whole truth look like to you? What are the questions you have that you're too afraid to ask? How many of you are faking being saved just so you can fit in? But if you actually looked at it, you'd never surrender your life to Jesus. Great trivia. You know a lot about him. But you know that full submission would mean that you're no longer king of your life and you can't stand that idea. What's the truth? And BCHS has done an amazing job. And there's a gift that, that the world gives us when it slows us down now. Because you don't, 
You've got a phone in your hands at all times. You've got access to the internet at all times. You've got access to every person who lives on planet Earth in the palm of your hand. And BCHS has given you a great gift by slowing you the heck down and saying, ask a question and think about truth. So that's my challenge to you tonight. We have a God who paid it all. We have a God who calls out to us in the middle of our weakness and our separation and our loneliness and that's what sin does. Just like the blood for that woman, it separated her from the temple. It separated her from God. And Jesus, after hearing the whole truth, calls her daughter. And for some of us, because there's hurt, there's pain, there's questions, or there's just a lack of submission in our life and our heart, the gospel's always been out there and it's never been in here. And because of that, you always find it hard to connect. You always think that worship is weird. You're always critical of people who teach and talk and you're always harsh on people who teach sermons and you always think they could do better. But it's not really because of that. It's because your heart hasn't been transformed by the hard work of the truth of who you are placed in front of the King Jesus. But the difficult thing about our world is fake is so in that you could go the rest of your life and keep up appearances but you will meet God face to face and he will not be confused or hoodwinked or tricked by the charade of your life. The Bible makes it clear, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And so I plead with you as, a, as, as someone who loves you. I plead with you as someone who has wrestled through these very things. I plead you as someone who feels like I've been through hell I want you to know Jesus. And I don't want you to know a little bit about him. I want all of you to be known by all of him. And if he stood before you right now, no audience, and you got to the core of your pain, agony, questions, doubts, or lack of submission, what would you say to the king? What would be your whole truth? It's in that you will find the life-changing salvation and grace of a relationship with Jesus and not a fake transactional adherence to the fact that there might be a God. I just want you to know that. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you convict me in my heart in those areas where if there's pain, if there's a lack of submission, if there's a doubt, if there's fear, if there's anger, God, if there's anger over our parents getting divorced, if there's fear because we are scared of what's happening in the world, if there's frustration, God, if we just can't stand having to talk about you all the time because we have such a deep hate in our heart for who you are, would we just be real with that? If we're confused at why the people who seem to not follow you prosper and those who follow you are found consistently in the middle of suffering, if we've got deep questions that pervade our human heart, our human longings, would we lay before you tonight and we, would we just bow and on our knees say, God, I've got to tell you the whole truth of who this is. And for some of us, God, that whole truth is just, we wanna sit and adore you deeper. We don't even stop to do that. For some of us, the truth is, God, you've been faithful and I have tried to be faithful in return. And, Thank you for that gift in my life. But for a lot of us, that truth is much deeper and it's maybe even much scarier to think about what we might say. But God, this isn't 
The View. This isn't Oprah. This isn't a talk show. This is us crawling up into the arms of the God who built us and knows exactly what we're going through anyway and just opening up our heart and saying, this is what I'm going through, Jesus. Would you give us the bravery to break down the walls of the facade and the charade that we've played to lean into your goodness and your grace. It's your name we pray.